This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. As we step back into Nehemiah's story today, we're going to begin again in chapter 6. We're just going to jump into scripture today. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, please do that. We'll be beginning in verse 1. The words will be on the screen behind me. If you have a phone or tablet, you want to use the YouVersion app, you can open up uh, that app, search under events for Parkview Finley, and find scripture and sermon notes there. Let's begin reading in verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying, out, I'm carrying on a great project. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Chapter opens up with this brief reference to success. The walls are nearing completion. The stonework is done. There are no more gaps in the wall. There are no more weak places where the walls can be infiltrated. The only place that's left unfinished are the, the gate posts where there should be a gate in between. There's no gates. So every place in the wall that has a gate, those are the only weak points left. Not because the, the stonework hasn't been completed, because we just haven't set those gates on their foundations. But the walls form a complete barrier around the city, save for those points. This is, a, this is a victory for the people of Israel. This is an incredible milestone on their work project. And yet, instead of feeling the moment of victory, they're distracted. Their focus has been taken away from what God is doing among them because of the opposition that they're facing. All of them are aware. All of them are focused. All of them are cautious and guarded against this opposition knowing that what they have accomplished has become a catalyst to the enemies around them, catalyst to those foreign peoples who are trying to keep them from restoring, trying to keep them from completing their work. And they are redoubling their efforts. Knowing that these open gates are the last opportunity to get into the city, to weaken the resolve of the Israelites, to keep them from completing the rest of the gates and closing off the walls, making Jerusalem a fortress again. It's important because everything that they've been doing to undermine the work so far, everything they've been doing to intimidate the Israelites, to scare them back to their farms, will cease when that wall is complete, when the gates are closed. And when those gates are closed, they know the only way back into Jerusalem is to lay siege to the city, to gather an army and attack. But that's not possible because all of the people in this region belong to the same empire. The Israelites, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, all of their respective nations are all under the banner of the Persian Empire. They've all been conquered 
they have all been subjected to the king. They send tribute and taxes to Artaxerxes. And all of them are bound by the laws of Persia. They cannot attack one another in force. They cannot band together in armies and defeat one another because they are all a part of the same governing kingdom, empire. And so they know that their last efforts must be done here and now before the gates go up. Because they've failed in every other attempt so far, now they change their tactics. Now, instead of working against the people of Israel, they're going to point their attention at Nehemiah. And the opposition for Nehemiah will become a personal attack. It began with a message sent to Nehemiah to have him come and meet them in a small town on the plain of Ono. Now, the plain of Ono is northwest of Jerusalem, about 20 miles, where the land slopes down toward the Mediterranean Sea. A lot of little villages there. It's kind of a desolate no-man's land. And they invite Nehemiah there to have a conversation. Now, typically when there's uh, conflict, when there's difficulty, you want to find neutral ground to have a conversation. You want to have a ground that doesn't favor one side or the other. However, in, in this instant, when they're calling Nehemiah out of Jerusalem to this place, they're actually putting him at a distinct disadvantage because they're drawing him closer to their respective nations, to this land that's bordered by these people who are a threat to him personally. And he knows that a 20-mile journey at this time, on foot or on horseback or on camel, is a long journey. This is, this is days traveling, meeting, returning, this is going to hinder their work significantly. Not only that, it's going to draw Nehemiah so far away from his people in Jerusalem that if something goes wrong, if he's attacked, if he's threatened in some way, no one will be able to come to his rescue in time to actually do any good. So rather than going out to meet them personally, Nehemiah sent a messenger to decline the invitation. No thanks. He suspected their intentions were to harm him, and so he responded directly. I'm busy. I'm working on a great project. I'm washing my hair that night. I just can't come. I'm busy working on a great project. I can't go to this location. Why should I stop the work here? Why should I make all of this cease just because you want to have a conversation with me? And there really is part of their goal, to slow things down, to keep the work from being completed. But more specifically, to put Nehemiah in harm's way. And he, he recognized the veiled intentions hidden in the message. He, he knew that beyond putting a halt to the construction, they were trying to take him out of the picture, to take the leadership of the people of Israel away so that they would be left wandering, aimless, not able to work with such diligence and precision as they had been under Nehemiah's charge. Hopefully, if they were successful in all this, they could take him out of the picture permanently and put a stop to this wall. And their means of accomplishing this is persistence. Come and meet us out in the plain. No. Come and meet us out in the plain. No. Come and meet us out in the plain. They, they, they sent the same message four times, certainly hoping to be victorious through persistence. They, they were operating, maybe you've heard the phrase, don't take no for an answer. Certainly, if I just keep asking, you'll change. This is what kids do, their, do to their parents on a daily basis. Can I have ice cream? No. Mm, how about some ice cream? No. I'll get you ice cream with mine. No. Wouldn't ice cream sound really good on a hot day? No. But maybe 
if they just harass and annoy and pester you enough, your answer might change. No. The problem with persistence is it's sometimes effective. Occasionally, you'll find success irritating people until they agree with you. The reason it's a problem is because once you're successful, you keep going back to that same strategy. You keep going back to this, this idea that maybe I can irritate you enough that you'll agree with me. Isn't that a sad way to argue a point? That I can just be irritating enough to win? Because it's minimally effective, because occasionally it accomplishes something, people continue to return to persistence as if it is a great negotiation strategy. Really what it is is a representation of determination, stubbornness, and those who are too arrogant to yield to another person's point of view. So they'll just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it until you agree with them. But not presenting a better argument, not presenting, not appealing to your logic or sense of reason. No, just persistence, wearing you down. You know, if the right answer was given to you the first time, why would a change in that answer 10 times later be a right answer? It's just going to be a compromise that isn't good for either one of you. Now, Nehemiah withstood the persistence of these men effectively, he withstood it by answering consistently and concisely. He, he stuck to the message. I'm busy. This work is great, and you're wasting my time. No. He stuck to his convictions, and he didn't allow the pressure from these other men to influence his faithfulness. He was faithful to his convictions. He's also faithful to his calling. This, this construction on the wall is what God had placed in Nehemiah's life. This calling to, to restore Jerusalem, the, the place where, where God's presence dwelt among his people. Nehemiah was working for something outside of himself, greater than himself, and he wouldn't allow persistence to keep him from what God had called him to do. And yet, they continued. In verse 5, we read how they continued. The fifth time, after you know, repetition failed, the fifth time, Sambalit sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. Therefore, you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. That sounds like blackmail to me. Mm -hmm. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. When persistence failed, they actually were smart enough to change their strategy. After four unsuccessful attempts, Sambalit changed his tactics. And he sent another message the fifth time, same message, but this time he sent with his messenger an unsealed letter. Now, most communication, especially between officials, should have been sealed with wax or clay, uh, a metal uh, a metal figure that, that represented the person who sent it stamped in that seal. And a sealed letter does two things. One, it tells the person who receives the letter, this is official. 
I can see who it came from because of the, the design and the seal. And two, it says, I, I've received this sealed, the sealed message. It means no one else has read it. It's confidential. This is for me only, and it has not fallen into the wrong hands. An unsealed letter does something else entirely, especially with important information. By giving his messenger an unsealed letter, Sambalit was almost guaranteeing that the information inside would become common knowledge. You think about a man who's given a, an unsealed piece of information, especially as juicy as the information here. Oh. Not only does he know what's in that unsealed letter, but as he's traveling and meeting people on the road, you won't believe what I'm carrying. You won't believe the information in this letter. Can you, can, can you believe this? Think about if this is true. And as he's walking and talking, spreading this gossip, other people are hearing it and going, oh, wow. I've seen that wall being built. I didn't know why. It's because Nehemiah wants to be king. This, this is terrible. And then going and telling everybody they can find about this information they have that nobody else. That's how gossip spreads. Now, as, the, as this messenger traveled and talked and, and, and communicated, can you imagine how quickly this information would have spread in the region around Jerusalem about what the Israelites were doing and the real reason why, according to Geshem? This is significant. Unfortunately, slander doesn't have to be true in order to be damaging. In fact, accusations can ruin a reputation faster than negative behavior sometimes. And people know this. And they use it to their advantage. Attacking people. Spreading information. Damaging reputations. Destroying respect and relationships along the way. This was the goal of Sambalit when he sent this open letter about Nehemiah to Nehemiah. He also insisted that Nehemiah meet with him. Just so you know, I'm going to make sure the king hears about this, but if you don't want that to happen, come and meet me. That's the hidden message there in that. But embedded in that is enough evidence for Nehemiah to recognize that something's wrong. If Sambalit was positive that Nehemiah was rebelling against the king of Persia, why would he want to meet with a rebel and a traitor? Why would he become a known associate of someone who was trying to set himself up as king? Why would he want to become an accomplice? He wouldn't. No one would want to be anywhere near Nehemiah if this information was true. And yet he's using it to try and force Nehemiah to come to a meeting. Opposition was desperately trying to weaken Nehemiah and the resolve of the Israelites. In fact, that's what Nehemiah resolved their plan to be, an attempt to weaken them so that they couldn't finish the work on the wall. And so Nehemiah turned to God and prayed, Lord, strengthen my hands. God provides the strength that overcomes our weaknesses. And Nehemiah recognized that truth, that in God they would find everything they needed, the strength to endure, to overcome. Not just the strength to put rocks in the right place, but the strength to stand against opposition, the strength to hold their ground, the strength to be themselves even while being attacked personally for what they were, they were called to do. This is how God empowers us to live our lives for him. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul described the, the armor of God. 
the things that God supplies to us in order to stand against attack for our faith. He summed up that passage with these words in verse 13. He said, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. God provides armor, protection, defense, strength, power, so that we can stand, so we can stand for what's right, so that we can stand for our convictions according to his word, so that we can stand according to our calling. God gives us everything that we need to answer our weaknesses, to stand in the face of difficulty. And we know when we feel weak, God will provide the strength to overcome our weaknesses. When we feel inadequate, he gives us confidence. When we feel threatened, he reassures us. When we feel tired and stressed and burdened, he supplies the peace and strength that we need to be faithful to his calling in our lives. When we face obstacles, he supplies what we need to overcome them. When we're attacked personally, he provides everything we need to stand. Above all else, to stand. To hold our heads high, knowing that we're standing on the conviction we have according to his word. When we face difficulty that we don't feel like we can overcome, he supplies what we need to overcome it. When we are the obstacles, he also gives us the strength to overcome our own weakness. What does that mean? When we're too afraid to be the people that God has called us to be. When we allow temptation to reign in our lives and we step away from the person that God's calling us to be because of sin. God meets us there and provides the strength that we need to repent and turn back to him and step back into that calling and step back into that conviction. When we don't believe that we have what it takes, God provides the strength that we need to know that in him, we do have everything that we need. And he answers all of our weaknesses. He answers all of our doubts. He answers all of our, our faults and flaws with the strength that only he can provide. And yet, we know that we will face difficulty, opposition, personal attacks. We know that that's a part of life. In fact, for Nehemiah, it continued to be part of his situation. In verse 10, the story continues. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said... Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I won't go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sandalit had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. 
When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, And his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. There's a lot of opposition. This is a, this is a heavy burden for Nehemiah. He went to meet with a fellow Israelite of family of priests, a man who was shut in at his home. Now, that's familiar, isn't it, being shut in at home, not able to go out. We've all had those moments, those days on end because of COVID that we aren't able to leave the house. This man, however, doesn't have a good reason listed for why he isn't leaving home. In fact, the word in Hebrew uh, that tells us he's shut at home carries with it the, a shade of meaning that, that he's worried. He's shut in because of his worry. Now, here's a man who has a lot to worry about. He's involved in conspiracy. He has been hired by the enemies of Israel to work directly against Nehemiah, to bring him to the temple. He's so worried that he's in his home and shut up, shut in, not going out, with the doors and windows closed, hiding in his home. He tried to give Nehemiah the impression that God gave him this message that he needed to go hide in the temple because people were coming to kill him at night. He invited Nehemiah to enter the temple, close the doors behind them as a means of protecting themselves against this threat. Now, there's several clues for Nehemiah to pick up on to indicate that something was not quite right. It's a trap, in the words of Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. One, Shemaiah was calling him in the wrong direction. Ever since Nehemiah heard about the condition of Jerusalem, God called him forward. God called, placed this calling in his life to, to travel to Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls, to stand with his men, guarding each other while they worked, while they were being attacked by foreign people. To stand. And now suddenly, God gave you this message that I should run and hide in a temple and close the doors? No, that's, that's not a message from God. The second clue that Nehemiah was being trapped was this. The plan Shemaiah had would call Nehemiah to sin against God, to break God's law of instruction that he had given to his people. Now, the temple of God for the Israelites was a holy place. And the people of Israel could go into the outer courts, some of the men were allowed in other places, but inside the temple, in, the, in, in those secure places, only the priests were allowed to enter in. And for Nehemiah, as a just general person of the people of Israel, to step inside would have been a sin against God. And in order for them to entice him to do that, it would have broken his reputation as a leader of the people of Israel. They would have known his lack of integrity. His reputation would have been damaged and his ability to lead destroyed. That's the goal, to draw Nehemiah into a trap, to remove him from his place of leadership, to destroy the resolve of the people, to keep them from completing the wall. And in spite of their best efforts, 
Notice, did you, did you catch that verse? They finished the wall in 52 days, less than two months. They did this incredible architectural feat of rebuilding these massive walls around Jerusalem, this impenetrable barrier that made that city a fortress in 52 days. And this incredible feat that they saw unfolding before their eyes, all of the surrounding nations lost their confidence. Why? Because they recognized that they weren't just dealing with a group of people. They were witnessing the hand of God at work. That by the power of God, this wall was completed. When we face opposition, we can be confident that it will not prevail against the power of God. That nothing God sets his will will fail. The power of God will always prevail. In every situation, we can have confidence in God and his power. We can look to the past and see proof the power of God in the way that he has worked in our lives. We can look into Scripture and see stories of the power of God at work. We look to the Gospels and see the power of God prevailing against opposition come to fulfillment in Jesus on the cross. This moment when it looked like Satan had won the victory as Christ laid himself down on the cross, in fact, was his victory over sin and death. Once and for all, surrendering his life to free all of us. The punishment we deserve because of our sins, God was victorious, and he remains so. And we can have confidence even when our opposition is strong. We have confidence even when there are people against us. We have confidence that God will prevail through us when we stand with dignity, integrity, and faithfulness. So the people of Israel stood in this moment of victory, and yet we're still careful, still willing to defend their wall and their city and the image of their God. We step into chapter 7 and we get a glimpse of what it meant for them in this victory, how they were still careful to defend God and his wall. This passage will connect us to next week as they begin to celebrate the, the victory of completing their work. Here's what it says. After the wall had been built, and I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. They knew the power of God would prevail. They saw how God had helped them accomplish the completion of this wall. And they were willing to put themselves on the line, to allow God to work through them to protect what he had done. And we know that God's power will prevail. When we stand for our convictions, when we stand for the calling of God in our lives, we can have confidence that the power of God will prevail. We can stand knowing that everything that's a part of God's will, he will accomplish. And knowing that God's power will prevail 
question that remains in front of us is a question of trust. Do we trust Him? Can we trust His power and His strength? Can we trust that He will see us through the difficulties that we face? Can we trust that when we stand on our convictions, we don't have to worry about the personal attacks that come? Do we trust that God has made a wise decision by working in our lives and through our lives? Do we trust that He can do what He said He will do? Do we trust that He'll have the victory? Can we trust Him with our lives and with our eternity? Do we trust Him enough to surrender who we are to Him? Do we trust Him enough to lead us and guide us, to live our lives for Him? Can we surrender that all for His will and for His glory? And each of us have to answer that question for ourselves. And I want to challenge you this morning to respond to that question as you feel God calling you. To respond in trust, knowing that God's strength is there for you, carry you through, 